Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, folks. Uh, welcome to the to chewing the fat. I'm Leland Whitehouse with the Yale Sustainable Food Project, and my guest today is Eric Holt Jimenez. Uh, he's an agroecologist, author, lecturer, uh, valiant grappler with the biggest, toughest problems in global food. He's currently the executive director of Food First, also called the Institute for Food and Development Policy, uh, an organization that the New York Times called one of the country's most established food think tanks, but that understands itself as a people's think and do tank. Uh, Eric edited Food First's 2011 book called Food Movements Unite, Strategies to Transform Our Food Systems, and authored the earlier Food First book, Food Rebellions, Crisis and Hunger for Justice. Before running Food First, uh, Eric started the Campesino a Campesino, or Farmer to Farmer movement. Uh, he has studied and consulted as an agroecologist all over the planet and uh, has given countless talks and lectures across the country and world, getting the word out about, uh, about issues of global food and lending a little bit of coherence to those discussions. So thanks so much for coming in, Eric. Thanks, Leland. Thanks for having me. I, uh, over the past couple of weeks, have been digging into some of your work on the internet, and I've bought your books, which I'm digging. Um, and I've found you do a better job of summarizing uh, some of the failures of global food than anybody. There's these like great, um, succinct explanations of exactly what's screwed up. Uh, so if you could just do us a favor and do maybe like a drive-by analysis of what you see as the, the big pitfalls uh, of the way we're growing food all over the planet. Um, that would be awesome. <laughs> Thanks for that, Leland. Um, I have to say I've had a lot of great teachers, uh, starting with the, uh, the farmers that I worked with for about 25 years in Latin America, who have a very close relationship with food, and I think that uh, for the most part they get it right. So uh, what I wondered was, if these farmers are getting it so right, why are their lives so wrong? Why are they poor? Why do they um, lose in the marketplace? Why are they being pushed up on, onto the fragile hillsides or out onto the agricultural frontier, the rainforests and whatnot? And um, so after working with the farmer-to-farmer -farmer movement that uh, had actually uh, figured out ways to restore the fertility of their land agroecologically. You know, they'd been run over by the Green Revolution. I saw that. You know, their, their land had been made sterile, and their livelihoods were in bankruptcy because of the fertilizers and pesticides and credit and, that they had uh, taken out, and, um, which had um, not worked for very long, just not sustainable, and pretty soon had a negative impact on their lives. They rebuilt their food systems. Um, literally from the ground up, and uh, I was a part of that, and I learned an immense amount, and I learned what I later found out was agroecology, because what I did was after doing that, um, I went back to school at the ripe age of, I think, 48 or and got my PhD, because I wanted to understand why the, the wrong things seemed to prevail in food and farming around the world. And the good things um, were being systematically destroyed. Um, and so I, I did. I got, I got my PhD, and uh, I was older than a lot of my professors, and, uh, which was interesting. 
Um, but I really knew what I wanted. You know, I really want, I wanted to understand the food system. And I have to say, um, you know, I, I really didn't like what I found. Um, and I ended up at Food First, which has a 40-year history of looking at the problem of food and hunger. And 40 years ago, Francis Mordelpay said it very well, uh, and it's still true today. There's more than enough food to feed everyone. We have a billion people in the world hungry, not because there's not enough food. We produce one and a half times, one and a half times enough food to feed every woman, woman, man, and child on the planet. People don't buy the food because they're poor. And then you have to ask, why are people poor? Um, and then it begins to get uh, very complicated because one finds that the poorest people in the world are farmers. And yet they produce over half the world's food. And most of them are women. So right away, you know, we're looking at um, all kinds of inequities of gender um, that, and in terms of access to food producing resources, in terms of fair access to fair markets uh, and whatnot. And because if they are feeding half the world, then why are they going hungry, right? And the simple, you know, the very simple equation is because they're poor. Because after they uh, harvest, they have to sell their harvest because they need the money. And six months later, they buy back the food, and by then it's increased three or four or five times in price, and they go hungry. Um, I mean, that's sort of the, the very baseline political economy of what's wrong with the food system. Uh, farmers around the world get less and less and less of the food dollar. And um, who's getting more of the food dollar? Well, I think we have to look at the... Uh, if you look at the food crisis of 2008 and again in 2011... Um, where over a billion people went hungry, and we had food riots all around the world. Uh, and in 2011, these riots exploded into the Arab Spring, right? Um, you find that at the same time where a billion people were going hungry, the world had never produced as much food in its history. And then we find that the multilateral monopolies who control the grain, the seed, the fertilizer trade, the retail giants were making record profits at the time that a billion people were going hungry. So I'm talking about Monsanto, ADM, Cargill, Walmart, you know, Tesco, um, those that basically um, suck the value out of the value chain of food. We have a $6 trillion a year uh, food industry, uh, and that's just the food that gets commercialized. That much, much more gets grown and eaten locally, of course. Um, but that wealth, that incredible wealth, um, does not accrue to the farmers and is, uh, ends up uh, producing some pretty bad food, actually, which is making a lot of the world very sick. So my friend Raj Patel says that we've got uh, a billion stuffed and a billion starved. And uh, of those stuffed, uh, they're not doing well. Um, and uh, here in the United States, you know, the 50 million people we have who are food insecure, um, many of them are, are suffering from diet-related diseases and are, in fact, obese or suffer from diet-related diseases, uh, heart disease, diabetes, and whatnot, um, even though they are food insecure. So this cheap um, processed food uh, which we're getting is not only creating inequities, that system not only creates inequities at the production end, 
it also has all kinds of terrible health externalities on the uh, consumer end. Gotcha. That's the drive-by. I'm in. Just right. The, uh, and so I think it does seem safe to say that, at least on some level in some pockets, the uh, awareness of, of some of those problems, or if, if not the sort of overarching narrative of how these things are working, people are starting to figure it out. Um, you know, the fact that there's a food sovereignty conference at Yale this weekend at least points to some sort of progress. Um, how do you think... Uh, that those those movements and those and the sort of pushback against these systems, how's it going? What are there? Um, you know, who? What are some of the most effective ways these these uh, this resistance is happening, and what are some of the you know some of the wasted energies? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, being the executive director of Food First, I do travel all around the world, and I visit lots of universities and I visit a lot of uh, development projects and I speak with a lot of people from social movements all around the world and they're, all of them are focusing on the same thing. They're first focusing on transforming this food system because they see it as unsustainable and inequitable and um, it's, it's a food system where a number of crises converge you know, the, the energy crises, the climate crises, the food crises, the economic crisis, all comes together in the food system. And so what you see is that things are getting so bad um, that people are pushing back. And I, I think what it looks like is we see both resistance to an inequitable, unfair, unjust, and, and uh, highly unsustainable food regime, um, and we also see construction of a new food regime. And uh, we're still in crisis because, you know, the old refuses to die and and the new is trying to be born. So we're very much in a transitional period. And these are historical processes and they take time. Uh, We don't have much time, unfortunately. Uh, So people are working very hard. And so you see the food sovereignty movement, for example, uh, beginning to converge with the food justice movement. Well, let me step back. The food sovereignty movement is a movement which really came out of um, peasant farmers and fishers and pastoralists in the global south who saw their lands being uh, basically confiscated by capital from the north, from from, um, uh, uh, basically moneyed interests from the north, financial interests from the north, big plantations from the north, uh, agrofuels, uh, we have like, land grabs and whatnot. All of this as a result of the last 20 years of the neoliberalization of the economy. So as neoliberalism privatizes everything and draws society into the world market, um, most people do very poorly. And particularly the people growing our food do very poorly in that regard. Um, and so they begin to push back because they're losing their land, losing their livelihoods, and that's where you get food sovereignty. The notion of food sovereignty, which has been introduced by La Via Campesina, which is a peasant federation, a global peasant federation with over two and a half million farmers, farming families, um, they say, no, food should be for the people. They say that, that we should democratize the food system. We need to take control over our food. Now, that's very different than food security, where, where 
people have secure access to food. Because Via Campesinas, Sina is saying, actually, we need to control the systems that produce, process, and distribute the food. Because as uh, one person from uh, the food justice movement in the U.S. told me, you know, you can be food secure in jail. <laughs> and, um, and I think that touches on another point. You know, in the United States, uh, we produce more food than anybody in the world except China, and we are the richest country in the world, and yet we have 50 million people who are hungry. Uh, we call them food insecure because hunger is a... Is a sounds messy. Sounds yeah. pretty messy. So the USDA has basically asked us to please call people food insecure. And, you know, here it's very racialized. Most of the hungry people in the United States tend to be people of color and live in underserved communities in rural areas and in urban areas. And the irony here is that in the rural areas, they're the people who pick our food and who process it, right? And in the urban areas, they're very often the people who serve our food and, and prepare and serve our food. Um, and these are the people who have the highest levels of food insecurity, right, within our industrial food system. So they've pushed back very much and calling for food justice, that everybody, no matter who they are, has a right to fresh, healthy food. Right? So you begin to see these movements come together around the world, food justice, food sovereignty, food democracy, Whatnot. And basically, you know, it's a recognition that this isn't working, this is bad for everybody, and that we've got to come up with something else. And uh, as far as, you know, I think historically it, it can be very difficult to organize uh, in rural areas in general that there's, there's like, there are some uh, banding farmers and migrant workers together. They don't, they don't show up at the factory every day to, and, uh, you know, clock in. It's hard to get 200 of them in a room. Uh, how are these organizations, these, these movements that are coming up, they sound like they're happening from just sort of organic grassroots reactions to injustices. People are finding that they have uh, a common interest and they're banding together. How are those, um, you know, how are those movements organizing? Where is their, how are they sort of acquiring the critical mass? I imagine there's not an enormous amount of Internet use happening in, in uh, some of these places where, uh, where the problems are the worst. Um, and how do those movements fit in uh, to some of the movements that I think we maybe run into more at Yale, which seem like uh, movements led by professors and, and organizations on the coasts and things like that? Sure. Um, well, you know, this has surprised everybody. And, uh, you know, on one hand, um, particularly in the global south, people fall back on good old-fashioned organizing. You know, you go, you knock on the door, you go walk into the field, you talk with the person, they talk with their family, their extended family, you know, the old way of building a movement. Um, and then we have to realize that this uh, food system has created tremendous dislocation. So with the free trade agreements, um, basically, for example, um, corn from the United States, which is highly subsidized and sold at... Uh, at prices well under the cost of production, is then dumped on Mexico. Uh, and Mexican farmers, of course, can't compete. And the first to go out of business are the small farmers. So shortly after the signing of NAFTA, you know, two and a half million Mexican small farmers went bankrupt. Where did they go? They came to the United States to look for work, right? Um, well, now these people have cell phones, right? So if you look at the coalition of Immokalee workers, who are tomato workers, tend to be indigenous people from Mexico. Um, um, they've organized into the coalition of Immokalee workers, and they've 
been highly successful in pushing back against not only the tomato industry, but the fast food industry and the retail industry. Because what they discovered was, if they formed alliances with students, rather than try and push against the tomato growers out in the middle of nowhere in Immokalee, Florida, where no one's going to see you, um, and in fact, such a backwater that, we, that there was the coalition of Immokalee workers which uncovered and denounced a number of instances of modern-day slavery, right? They were able to form an alliance with students who eat at fast food restaurants to say, if the owners of the fast food chains, like Taco Bell, um, did not tell the uh, tomato growers to pay another penny a pound, that the students were going to go on strike and not anymore at Taco Bell. And they were extremely successful. And they formed alliances with churches as well. And so you have tremendous mobilizations and marches and boycotts against, uh, against the fast food industry and against a number of retailers. And one by one, the retailers all roll over and say, OK, we're going to pay another penny a pound. And not only that, they sign on to an agreement of principles where they denounce modern-day slavery in the fields, where they call for, um, they insist on uh, decent working conditions and housing conditions. And so, you know, here are people whom, many of whom, not only do they not speak English, many of them don't speak Spanish, they're, they're indigenous people, um, many have very limited formal education, and yet they've been sort of wise enough and persistent enough and brave enough to organize a movement that has backed the fast food industry and a, a number of retailers into a corner into paying a much, it's still not a great price, but another a penny a pound makes a tremendous difference to these workers. Mm-hmm. And then, so I see, you know, and then we look into some of the um, underserved communities in urban areas. And you look at the, the uh, black, uh, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network in Detroit, which has been, you know, devastated um, with the fall of the uh, auto industry and the complete ne- neglect of the federal government. Um, and you have huge areas in Detroit where people have access to nothing. Not only do they not have access to good food, they don't have access to education, they don't have access to basic services, um, and they've organized. They've organized, and they've organized to grow their own food, uh, among, among many other things. So people are organizing politically because at, the, at its core, this whole issue of bad food, of a lack of food, of uh, poor access to food, is a political problem. Mm. Of bad working conditions. This is a, these are political problems. And so people are organizing politically. And so for a uh, 19, 20, 20-year-old, 20 21-year-old, uh, like energetic ready to get involved political kid surrounded by similar kids um in the states maybe starting from new haven but i I imagine across the country are there some uh particular worthwhile political targets for us now and some and some particularly uh effective tools for you know i'm not without a lot of resources and without a lot of without 12 hours a day um what do we do well of course there are and of course you're in a very privileged position because, you know, you're at Yale, and you get to study agrarian studies, and you have the, um, the Sustainable Food Systems Project, right? So you get to address these issues and, and understand them uh, in, in greater depth. But, um, you know, just reach out. Things around f- 
food are happening everywhere. And so, you know, join a food policy council. Ally yourself with a community group that's addressing uh, maybe food access. Even beginning to work with a food bank. I mean, all these things are extremely important. What is very important for, uh, I would say, the younger generation is to do all this, do that hands-on work, get your hands dirty, get involved, develop very close relationships with the people for whom losing hope is just not an option. Hmm? And then act politically. This is a political problem. So, you know, growing, a, growing organic carrots is great. I grow organic carrots. But it's not enough, right? We have to look at the system um, which is making those organic carrots so expensive in the supermarket that pe- people can't afford to buy good food. And it is making lousy, cheap, processed food um, the only accessible food in the, in the markets for uh, underserved communities. So that because, because we're subsidizing corn and soy and, and whatnot. So I think that um, the engagement is extremely important. I think the study of the problem is very important. But that was very interesting about this um, Food Sovereignty Conference here at Yale, which I think was historical, because it was food sovereignty, a critical dialogue. And the dialogue was not just between academics. We had people from the social movements and from Via Campesina and from Detroit here at the conference. And the dialogue was very rich because, you know, these people engage with the problem on a day-to-day basis on the ground and have very clear needs about what the research needs to be in order for us to solve these problems. Um, To change tack a little bit, I understand you grew up milking cows and bucking hay. Um, How... Do you wind up where you are now? You're you're now working for Food First, and you're connected to these incredible global food systems. Um, you know how? What's the what's the story there? How have you? Uh, yeah, well, navigated? well, the first thing that happens is your back goes out, and you can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I grew up on the North Coast in California, and uh, the area at the time was a backwater, and uh, you know we, we worked very hard, and there was a, you had the salmon industry and the dairy industry, and that was pretty much it. Um, it's much different now. You know, wine grapes came in and kind of yuppified everything. Um, it's very expensive to live there. Uh, but what I did was, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, how did you make a career out of this? I never made a career out of this. What happened was that um, I took a, um, a kind of a leave of absence and the study, I designed a study abroad program in uh, Mexico and Guatemala for my final year at Evergreen State College and uh, and just became involved with the uh, with peasants in a village and then eventually uh, got a volunteer position with the Mexican Friends Service Committee and and um, I was supposed to be teaching farmers to farm sustainably and you know these are farmers who've been farming for six seven thousand years so it was a bit absurd for me. I'd basically been a ranch hand on a dairy um, to try and teach farmers to farm uh, rice, corn, and beans, which they knew everything about. But I learned much more about why the system wasn't working, and um, I learned a tremendous amount from them. And in that, I developed a commitment. I knew this was wrong. Uh, they started this movement called Farmer to Farmer. I didn't start that movement. I was there when it started, and I provided... 
um, what I could as someone who was mobile, who had some education, who could read and write. I had a typewriter at the time, and, and those were all important things. Um, and, um, you know, I just kept following that commitment. This movement began to work because they used agroecology to recover the fertility of their food systems. And it began to grow farmer to farmer. And it jumped to Nicaragua. And then from Nicaragua, it jumped to Honduras. And then it jumped to Costa Rica. And pretty soon it jumped to Cuba. And, and before I knew it, you know, 25 years had gone by. And, um, and it was so good and so successful. And yet, and, and we had proved it uh, scientifically a number of times. And, and yet I kept wondering why is the system working against what works? And that's what led me back to academia, to try and understand that. And luckily, the, the experience I had on the ground allowed me to apply for you know, fellowships, which I got. And uh, I'm really very grateful um, for my higher education. And do you still, um, now that you've, um, do you still get your hands dirty? Do you still get to dig wells and plant school gardens? Or are you, are you now... Um, strictly talking to goofballs like me and in, in uh, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I I still got my hands dirty. We have a garden at Food First that we eat from every day, um, and uh, yeah, if you come to be an intern at Food First, which I would invite uh, students to do, anybody listening to consider, uh, you get uh, free lunch. You know, we we all eat together at Food First, and a lot of it comes out of our garden. And you know, I have a garden at home, and. Um, but no, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of things that I used to do, which were new, and nobody else really knew how to do in terms of developing this farmer-to-farmer methodology and doing agroecological experiments with farmers and whatnot, a lot of people know how to do that now. So I'm not really needed there, and I don't think my back could take it anymore. So um, I'm sort of doing what I think now that I can best do to help this movement grow. Well, Eric, thank you so much for, for coming in and talking to us today. Um, make sure and check out uh, some of what happened at the Food Sovereignty Conference. is going to be on the Internet uh, shortly. We've, uh, we have audio and video of all that stuff. You can see what Eric had to say about food sovereignty. And uh, make sure to tune in for the next episode of Chewing the Fat. Uh, and may I please direct people to Food First website, where all the papers from the conference are posted, and uh, we'll share... Also, with the videos, it's www.foodfirst.org. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.